Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sermonjeet Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Natalie Scholler, who is an immunologist and the director of cancer biology of the Biosciences Wing of SRI International, which is a nonprofit research institution. Thank you for chatting with me. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. And uh, so this is the first podcast that we're doing via Skype in different time zones, so I'm kind of excited about this. Uh, so I, I really appreciate your time. So let's really um, discuss a little bit about uh, your research. You focused on um, back when you were at UPenn, University of Pennsylvania, which is a short while ago, you focused on um, biomarkers for ovarian cancer and just cancer, the, immu- the human immune response to cancer in general. Is that, yes. is that a fear? That's correct. Uh, so I just wanted to, let's, if it's okay, start very, very basic. So if you could maybe explain what is cancer? How does it start? Uh, well, there are many forms of cancer, so it's it's, it's difficult to, um, <laughs> uh, to, to 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 give a description one fits all. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's fair to say that uh, tumor cells are uh, cells that lost any type of uh, proliferative control, so that they they grow. Uh, without caring whatsoever about uh, the neighbors or the resources they have around. And if they can persuade the, uh, the environment to give them um, everything they need, uh, they will grow indefinitely. And this is the key point, is that they need to find in the environment uh, uh, the energy supplies that they depend on. And um, when you look at cancer like that, you understand uh, uh, their weakness. Their weakness is to find the energy they need. If you can find a way to block uh, their their food supply, you kill the cancer without even having to uh, attack the cancer directly. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what immunologists are trying to do. It's... uh, it's not a frontal attack of the tumor cells. It's a peripheral attack and trying to cut the food supplies. And a lot of times, does that mean just cutting off the blood supply to the, to the tumor cells, or can it also mean something else? Yeah, so the blood supply is part of it. Uh, and um, um, So um, treatments that are based on... Uh, Angiogenic on, on vessels and blocking the vessels, blocking the neoangiogenesis, are are part of that. Uh, it is an approach for cancer, but it, what the immunologists are doing is uh, trying to to block uh, the immunological help uh, to cancer cells. Um, so there are some type of uh, immune cells such as macrophages. Uh, that can destroy cancer very efficiently, but at the same time, uh, promote their growth very efficiently. And um, the whole um, uh, there is a, a huge part of uh, the, the science changed tremendously recently uh, when people have realized that antibodies directed against cells that are not tumor cells but they are part of the tumor helper, uh, that antibody is capable to block uh, the function of those tumor helper type of cells, tumor-associated cells, those antibodies can cure. So this is, uh, this is great news. Wow. So to answer to your question, what is cancer? Um, uh, there are many interpretations to that. Uh, the old interpretation, cancer was this... Uh, uh, in the in the old uh, old perception of cancer, uh, cancer cells were were like almighty, uh, powerful cells growing uh, widely, no matter what, um, and therefore had to be destroyed by uh, the strongest possible means, uh, and. Um, 
the vocabulary that was used was uh, extremely aggressive and warlike. So the magic bullet, uh, the uh, you know that would that would kill the tumor cells. Unfortunately, it does a lot of damage around also. Mm. But one of the uh, so this 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 perception of cancer. Uh, led to one of the greatest accomplishments of our time, that is Glivec, um, uh, 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 a molecule that is capable to completely stop the proliferation of cells that are uh, expressing the Philadelphia chromosome. And it's a type of leukemia. And mm. uh, uh, this type of leukemia, the CML, went from more than 90% of mortality than less than 10 or 5% of mortality with this treatment that, is, that has relatively few side effects. So this is, uh, this is a great accomplishment, but this is a leukemia. So this is about uh, blood cancer, right. where you have uh, tumor cells floating around and uh, being relatively independent of everything. You know, they they, uh, they proliferate indeed, but they don't need so much uh, tissue support. They they find what they need because they float around. When we speak about tumor solid tumors, you have something very different. Uh, you have um, tumor cells that are still proliferating uh, abnormally, and they are essentially taker. They don't give much uh, to the organism at all. Uh, they promote, they do. Uh, they compress organs that are around. That that are around. They use all the resources of the body. They are uh, not good citizens, to say the less. Uh, but they use the um, they use up uh, the, the, the support. They use up uh, immunological support, vascular support, stroma support, and so any type. And so when you understand that that type of cancer is um, need all this support to grow you have other ways to uh, attack it. Right. You, have, you know, by mm -hmm. cutting the support, you might be able to uh, uh, to block the tumor growth. And mm -hmm. it's important to understand because the other characteristic of cancer is to be, is um, uh, cancer is uh, genetically mm -hmm. unstable, um, which means that uh, if you hit, it's, it's uh, you, at times you have the impression to play a whack-a-mole type of game, because if you block one function, it will just, within a few weeks, it will just uh, figure out a way to be without this function, without this function and to develop another function. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, uh, you realize that frontal attack of an enemy that, is, that changes form all the time, it might not be such a great idea. Right. Uh, and by frontal attack, you can have small molecules that, that target certain pathways. Mm. You can have uh, antibodies that target certain biomarkers. Um, and all of those therapies uh, can be extremely uh, discouraging because uh, you will be able to uh, remove the tumor cells for a few months and then they will come back with a revenge uh, mm. and lacking. The, the target that that uh, that gave you success uh, previously. So, the, so sorry. So what you what you mentioned that when you let's say you have tumor cells and you block a specific function of theirs, but then they come back after a short while with another way to survive. Yes. So is that is that are are do they have all of these different types of methods of surviving already? In their gene, in, in their genetic arsenal, or is that uh, like a microevolution happening? It's like there's mutations going on with all of the divisions. Yeah, they mutate extremely fast. Right. right. Yeah. So there's mutations happening. Yeah. yeah. So the, the rate of mutation is extremely high. Most of those mutations are lethal, but uh, because they proliferate very fast, if you have only one success stories out of ten to the eight, it's enough to regrow tumor. Right. So, and you mentioned um, biomarkers, and that's uh, a big part of what your research has been about. So, what are biomarkers, and, and why are they important in immunology? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so th there is several uh, biomarkers of a big, uh, big bag of goodies. 
uh, I began in the field of biomarkers when I was at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and I was uh, lucky enough to be hired by Nicole Oban, who is uh, a, a, a pioneer in um, who pioneered the field of uh, early detection uh, in ovarian cancer. Because what people have noticed is that uh, ovarian cancer detected uh, at early stage is uh, can be treated in the vast majority of cases, but detected in late stages cannot be treated. Or um, there are some progresses, but still the, the discrepancy between uh, the two stage of uh, you know treatment if you treat early or if you treat late, it's very clear that. Um, the best interest of the patients to be treated early. The problem is that uh, ovarian cancer has not much symptoms at all, and it's been called a, a silence killer. Mm. Uh, so how do you detect early something that has essentially not much symptoms, and when there are symptoms, well, it's stage four. Uh, that's where the idea of to, to try to detect this cancer with uh, biomarkers rather than symptoms came to the table. And so what is the best way, of where do you find biomarkers? Um, ideally, that would be just at looking at the person, but unfortunately it's, not, it's very difficult to do. And then the, the, next, uh, uh, the next best bet is from fluids, because it's non-invasive, or perceived as being minimally invasive type of uh, uh, type of diagnosis. So, uh, blood marker from the blood markers. So, finding markers in the blood test, something that would um, uh, tell you within an hour or two, hey, you have a cancer brewing, uh, would be of enormous help uh, for for the patients and and, and for the, the therapist. Um, so that's that's where the whole thing is is about. So how do you find a blood marker? How do you find a blood marker? Uh, that's the real problem. Is that you need to find something that is cancer specific. The problem is that uh, tumor cells are, are no genius whatsoever. They tend to be uh, profoundly abnormal cells uh, that are hijacking every uh, normal functions to their own uh, advantage. So they are not creating much. Mm. Uh, they are not creating, they are, they are not frantically different from, uh, they are not extraordinarily different from normal cells. Uh, if you take them at the, at the molecular level, they might have some characteristic, they might be out of control. Uh, uh, they might not be able to live, as I was saying, as a good citizen of the body, but they don't, uh, they don't have... Um, uh, big labels on their forehead saying I'm a monster at all. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so that is the that is the that is the critical problem is that most of the time you find things that are over expressed on tumor cells or under expressed, but you don't find things that are completely de novo. Mm. Uh, the Philadelphia chromosome is a true invention of the tumor cells. It's a protein that is a, fu a fusion between two normal proteins. So it creates something completely new. And when you have something as clear as that, it becomes uh, easy to target and to kill. Mm -hmm. And uh, people have been trying to reproduce the miracle of the Philadelphia chromosome, but unfortunately it's not the case of other cancers. So the field of biomarkers is um, uh, complicated because it's the, the perfect cancer biomarker has not been found. You find things that are, as I said, overexpressed. So then the big problem you are dealing with is finding the threshold. What is the true threshold? Right. So if you take the case of CA125, that is the main ovarian cancer marker, uh, the threshold for the for the general population, would be something like 37 units. But for some people, it might be 40 units. For others, it might be 12 units. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, when the marker uh, begins to grow, be begin to expand, uh, it, it is not very clear. When people are in a full flare disease, they might have thousands of units. But oh, okay. at the time, you don't need a marker anymore. You 
just look at them, you know they have cancer. So this problem of threshold and what is a normal threshold um, for overexpression is extremely difficult. So people are thinking now about doing uh, follow-up uh, uh, during the, the course of a lifetime. What does that mean for you to be normal? But mm. What are your markers uh, for you when you are 20? What is it to be normal? What is it? What is it a normal you? Uh, and is your normal you at 20 the same as your normal you at 40, the same as your normal you at 60? It's unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the biomarkers are doing this, uh, mm. these waves. So the first main problem is finding a biomarker that is typical for cancer. For typical for cancer at large. We don't find that. Oh, okay. Now, typical for cancer, uh, for a specific type of cancer. And now, typical for a specific type of cancer that would be uh, treatable. Because is it really worth uh, to tell somebody, hey, you know what, you have a cancer and we cannot treat you. You really want to have that new? No. You want to have a biomarker that will say, you have a cancer and we can treat you. Right. So all, all of that makes the field difficult mm -hmm. um, you know yeah it goes back to what you said earlier when i asked what is cancer you said it's very it's a very broad uh, uh question and it's tough to answer so of course i can imagine that you know biomarkers the specificity with which you have to look is, is it's immensely hard right and like and like and, and an example of, of a biomarker would it be would like any specific proteins that a tumor produces or uh, a piece of DNA from a tumor, would, would those things qualify yeah. as, as biomarkers? Everything qualifies. Okay. Uh, pieces of DNAs, mm -hmm. RNAs, um, um, protein, yes, but also glycans, mm -hmm. lipids, everything that can come in, that, that can... Uh, that is known can be a biomarker, mm -hmm. a biomarker, and panel of biomarkers are also uh, very attractive, and and might be much more predictive. And and then, because as a scientist in general, you always find a good a good reason to worry is that okay. The fact is that it is there are those um, studies that show that. People dying of car accidents uh, very often, very often are found with tumors. Mm. But those tumors were not known, and the proportion of people dying of car accidents or dying of accidents having tumors is um, far big, far higher than the proportion of actual people having tumors. So, which mm. means that a lot of the, a lot of tumors are naturally suppressed. So if we have the perfect biomarkers, which one day it happens, that we have biomarkers that will say, that will be sensitive enough to detect every single tumor in the body, the next danger would be over-treatment. So yeah. the fact yeah. is that it is not enough to have a biomarker of tumors. You also need biomarkers of health. It is not mm -hmm. enough to know that you have some tumor cells in your body. What is really important is to know whether your body is able to contain those tumor cells or not. And that we are still pretty far to be able to know that, to do that properly. Okay. And so once, but let's say once you, you have established that there, there are um, some biomarkers that you can use for determining whether or not a person has a specific type of cancer, then you say that you, you and this is of course where all the research comes in and finding uh, different methods or different avenues that the tumor cells use for getting nutrients, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. and, that, and then you try to attack it from different uh, different avenues. And you mentioned that using antibodies against um, cells that help the tumor cell is one way to kind of deplete the tumor cell or tumor cells yeah. of their nutrients. And yeah. so. I read a little bit about some some of the research that you've done with antibodies. Well, first of all, antibodies are are proteins made by our immune cells, um, specifically or usually by B cells of our immune system, and yes. they uh, 
target specific invasive pathogens in our body, to, to put it generally, right? So yeah. how and, – and you created uh, antibodies using yeast. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I plugged sequences in yeast for, for the yeast to produce recombinant antibodies, yes. So could you talk a little bit about how you did that, how that's possible? And, I mean, I know it's, it's all, you know – the magic of molecular biology, yeah. and, and, but it's really interesting. So could you talk a little bit about how you did that? Okay. Um, so yeah, as you said, uh, antibodies are normally produced by B-cells. The big problem of the B-cells is that they are not cooperating with uh, us uh, to grow in vitro. Uh, they grow well in our bodies, but when you put them in a petri dish and a flask in whatever you want, they stop growing. And that is extraordinarily frustrating. So there are ways to um, overcome the problem by fusing them with tumor cells and uh, producing what's called hybridoma. But it is a long, painful, uh, relatively inefficient process. And um, uh, by inefficient, I mean that it's probably fair to say that if you fuse uh, 1,000 B cells, you will have one hybridoma out of it. So you are losing wow. a lot of yeah. antibodies. Uh, the field uh, is extremely rich. There are uh, all the biotech companies of the world at this point seems to be interested in producing antibodies. So there are armies of robots and people trying to produce those hybridomas. Uh, but uh, one can always explore alternative paths. And uh, uh, so I have followed people who have um, tried other paths um, and using other microorganisms that are much more, uh, that are much easier to grow in vitro uh, and modifying them and plugging them um, piece of uh, DNAs that allows the production of recombinant antibodies. So we have done that in yeast. Um, yeast are a wonderful organism. They grow extremely fast uh, for extremely cheap. And uh, they can um, express molecules at their surface or they can uh, produce them. They can make them soluble so they can release that. It, uh, they, um, uh, you can mutate them almost um, indefinitely. And one of the very nice features is that you can block the production of proteases, which means that if they do not pro produce proteases, they won't degrade the protein they just secreted. It does not look like much. But uh, in practice, it makes a huge difference because now you can have an organism that pumps out of you know, a large quantity of proteins and those proteins stays intact in the supernatant. And you don't need to buy very expensive reagents to block the protease, the protease in the terminal. So mm -hmm. it makes the whole research very cheap. And um, one of the main problems of uh, the my type of scientist is to find the money. So when you can find an organism that works for you simply and cheaply, you're so happy. So that's, that's, a, that's a good reason. So those yeasts, uh, we are using a particular type of yeasts that are Cerevisiae. And uh, uh, as I said, you, we have developed vectors that we adapt from others uh, with our own particular markers uh, in order to produce uh, recombinant antibodies that we derive from uh, normal donors or from patients. And uh, we modify the yeast in such a way that they would express 1,000 to 10,000 copies of recombinant antibody at their surface. And we also were able to make them uh, produce those antibodies in a soluble way and uh, to make them produce also produce antibodies that are directly biotinylated, which means that they have a little flag uh, at the end of the antibodies that allows you to capture or to label that antibodies. Uh, 
So, yeah. So in a nutshell, that so it's it's a very convenient tools mm-hmm. tool, very convenient tool that allows you to clone. So you can clone an entire repertoire of antibodies from a patient or from a donor, and put that in a tube, and uh, it grows uh, limitlessly. Uh, as long as they have, there is food and the food for yeast is very cheap. Um, so it, it grows and you can uh, sc- do all sorts of screening from that. You can screen on, on cells, you can screen on proteins, you can screen on glycan um, and identify the yeast that bears the recombinant antibodies that bind to the protein of interest. Right, it has to be very specific. And, and right. for yeah. relatively modest amount of money in a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And right. once you have that yeast that produced the antibody of interest, then this antibody can be plugged in a different frame and produced by different organisms. So it can be produced back by mammalian cells or by a bacteria or by something else. Yeah. Uh, so the, because what you have is a way to interrogate the genetic program. So you use first the yeast as a translator of that genetic program, and once you have the right sequence, then you can grab the sequence in other frames. That is awesome. <laughs> it's, it's fun. It's really yeah. fun. And um, it's working. Mm-hmm. So. And so then you can actually get the B cells to produce the specific antibodies you, that you, you need. Re- yeah, you don't want to deal with B cells. They are way they are they are divas. You know, oh, they okay. are, <laughs> they're divas. So <laughs> the less I deal with B cells, the happier I am. Okay. Um, I take just what what they do best. Well, one of the characteristics that that serves out our purpose so far that is the the antibody and plug this genetic program in other cells that are much easier to handle. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, you know. and, and, so, and so once you produce the, these, once you uh, plug this genetic program into cells that are not divas, who, yes. that listen to you, and they produce these specific antibodies, then how do you, how, then how do you use these antibodies to target cells that are yeah. aiding the tumor? Yeah, so... Those antibodies, those recombinant antibodies, are the binding sites, right? It's the part of the antibody that binds specifically. So it's uh, essentially like a, a narrow head, right? The, mm. the, the searching part of the missile. And you can uh, stitch it to uh, many domains, so many genetic domains. So you can... Um, add it in frames that encode for effector side of the antibodies uh, that would trigger uh, cell cytotoxicity, cell killing, Mm -hmm. via a complement activation or via uh, macrophage binding. Mm -hmm. Or you can... And complements, just just to review, as people might not know, complements are uh, types of proteins that our immune system uses to form pores. In, in, exactly. in pathogens exactly. to, to kill pathogens. Yeah. Sorry, go on. It's, yeah. Not, yeah, it's a, it, the name was coined because it complements the activity of the antibodies. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinarily complex system that works as a cascade. There is more than 50 proteins in a cascade. But uh, bottom line is that within two minutes, you can have a complete destruction of a cell. The cell just melts. Mm-hmm. It is one of the most... Uh, efficient process to kill a cell. Uh, so if the complement uh, cascade is working, you don't have any cancer. You know, you have the problem is that the, the cancer cells are capable to inactivate all the complement uh, activity. Yeah. Um, but if you can catch the tumor cells before, some tumor cells don't have these inhibitory activities. They just lack. So with an antibody, you can do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, now, at times, uh, the tumor cells have found a way to inactivate the complement pathway. They have found the ways to inactivate the macrophages. So they essentially have defeated um, a lot of our natural path uh, of killing. So you need to engineer your antibodies with uh, time bombs. 
and that is the field of um, uh, ADC, that is uh, antibody drug conjugated. So what you will have, you will use your binding site of your antibody that you will fuse to um, uh, nanoparticles or to small drugs that drugs, yes, small molecules that will be packaged in such a way that they will become active only at the tumor site. So this yeah. is uh, a very hot field and um, this permits to lower the side effect of very toxic mm -hmm. drugs. Because drugs that kill tumor cells, they tend to kill a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Because again, tumor cells are no, I have no respect for tumor cells. I'm not like, whoa, almighty <laughs> Uh, yeah. power. No, I, I, I think they are the co complete idiots, but um, <laughs> very aggressive one. Yeah. And uh, so they hijack, as I said at the beginning, a lot of mechanisms uh, that works for other cells. So when you try to kill them, also kill a lot of normal cells around. Uh, so a way to avoid side effects is to know where the tumor cell is, where the tumor is, and to focus your your, your therapy just in that environment. You right. might kill everything that is around, but not uh, things mm -hmm. that are far away. And to do that, you can target your delivery through uh, antibodies that would serve as, um, that will search uh, the tumor and that will carry with them the drug. Mm -hmm. So antibody drug conjugated. So, so if you're if you're using uh, nanoparticles or small drug molecules uh, to bind with bind with the antibodies, and then then this this complex is responsible for finding the tumor site. Are the patients taking these orally? Are they delivered intravenously? How how are the patients getting these? Yeah, because that sounds very difficult to do. You know, to let let's say you have a tumor in uh, just a very small specific part of your body. If you were to take something orally and then expect it to reach the right site. You know, of course, I don't have the background to know how that's done, but to me, that just sounds amazing. You're perfectly right. It's, yeah. it's very difficult to do. Um, and I have many answers for you. Um, so intuitively, uh, when you think in a, I can't say, engineering type of mind, uh, uh, you will use the, the freeway of the body that are the vessels, the, the big vessels, right? So you find a vein, uh, uh, you put your product in that vein, and uh, if you see it as a rocket, as a, a guided missile, the guided missile part is the antibody, um, the payload is uh, your drug, and you send that in the big vessels, and eventually it will find the tumors because the blood circulates. So that's one way of doing it. It's actually not working that well. Why? Because we are much more complicated than that. It's that as soon as anything enters in the blood, you have all the macrophages and the, uh, uh, and the proteins in our blood that have been engineered by uh, millions of years of evolution to capture that. So it forms a big gunk around it, and here goes your targeting. Uh, the things is essentially taken up uh, by all sorts of molecules and directly delivered to the liver uh, and to the kidney, and uh, you have, and, and so you have a very minimum amount of uh, targeted nanoparticles that will go to the tumor site. Uh, so it, it is very moderately efficient. Um, Oral distribution is extremely difficult because uh, essentially what you have at the end of your uh, digestive, uh, at the end of your esophagus, it's a big uh, pool of acid, right? Yeah. pH2. Yeah. So it is pretty efficient to destroy about anything. So people are working at um, uh, developing uh, materials that are capable to resist uh, this acidic pool and to go to, uh, to the intestine and stuff. And, you know. mm -hmm. But it's quite difficult. Uh, it's visible, though. Uh, 
but it might not work for sites such as the brain or you know how, how do you get in the brain and then I, I, what I found, and but it's my bias, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying at all that anybody's wrong at this point. But my bias, what I'm fascinated by, probably because originally I'm a biologist, it's what um, the other microorganisms we are uh, surrounded with have been able to achieve over the evolution. And when you think about viruses or parasites mm-hmm. uh, or germs in general, they are. They have developed over the evolution uh, the ability to enter in any part of our bodies. When you look at parasites, they can go through the skin in 10 seconds, right? right. They, you don't know how, but yeah. you don't feel them, but they are in. Right. And within 24 hours, they are in your circulation, right. in, your, in your blood, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, when you have somebody sneezing in a bus, uh, 24 hours later, you might have the virus that was uh, sneezed out in your lung. And you didn't feel anything. Mm. You didn't need to go to the hospital. It, it was like that. So understanding how those uh, microorganisms are capable to invade every place of your body might be the way to go to distribute the treatments. Mm. You know, yeah. and my dream is essentially is one day, you know, your treatment of cancer, it will be like, <laughs> you know, and 24 yeah. hours later, it will be where, where it needs to be. Yeah, because that's essentially what viruses and, uh, and uh, right. other microorganisms are capable and, to do. And viruses have already been been used to, yeah. to target yes. cancer cells, right? Leukemia, exactly. specifically. Exactly. They'll, they'll, yeah. they'll, Massive center. There are there are there are great scientists that are doing that. They mm. are trying to uh, use those viruses properly. But they use so HIV, I'm, right? Uh, yeah. They re-engineered HIV. To yeah, uh, that yeah, was one so example. The yeah. of HIV. That's yeah. to um, uh, that's to use the ability of HIV to infect cells, uh, to modify those cells. Yeah, mm. that's that's a way of doing it to um, yeah. to make yeah. Yeah. But there are, there are many other ways of using viruses. Mm-hmm. And that um, uh, is, a, is a... When I see zombies movies, I'm a little upset because, you know, the, very often you have this absolutely mad scientist at the beginning that obviously has a massive case of hubris and say... Uh, yes, I cure the world. And next thing you know is that everybody became zombies and all of that because uh, it was using a virus to cure cancer. And I think that those movies, I resent those type of movies because they, I think they deter very smart people from science. It's like, mm. oh, I won't do that. No, 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 I won't do that. I don't want to kill everybody. And yet, this mm. is a great idea. I mean, virus, no... They, they know how to do things mm-hmm. that we absolutely need uh, for our health. But if, if, if only showing the danger and in, in the way Hollywood can show danger is mm-hmm. a, <laughs> is a bad idea. You know, mm-hmm. if, if if the first idea that you have before doing your research is it won't work or worse, I will kill the humanity. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, G- give scientists a little bit of credit. <laughs> Let's say. <laughs> right, but if let's say okay, so you're saying that very smart people might be deterred from entering these fields after seeing a, a depiction of science gone wrong, like a zombie yeah. movie. But I mean, don't you think that smart people that you know we want in these fields will be smart enough to realize that the chances of that probably aren't so high of happening? Or am I completely like, or is you know, or or are you saying this that there might be a chance of a, a, a zombie type apocalypse actually happening from from uh, a, an engineered virus to to attack cancer? You know, like it? No, right? So the answer is no. Yeah. I, I would I would by far prefer uh, Hollywood producers to uh, depict um, uh, somebody. Um, uh, uh, extremely, uh, you know, overcoming a lot of uh, uh, 
how can I say, somebody from a low background that works hard at school and eventually got a Nobel Prize, mm. you know, and focus uh, the, the love of the crowd towards that type of individual rather yeah. than focusing uh, the fear of the crowd towards uh, uh, mad scientists uh, mm. creating monsters. <laughs> And the problem is that the latter seems to be uh, more inspirational than <laughs> the, the, the... Right. I don't know. So, and, and so you will, see, you will see those movies that are talking about those great champions, you know, uh, those, uh, those great uh, athletes, uh, those great um, artists. Mm -hmm. uh, but the great scientists, meh, no, they, right. they have to be crazy. <laughs> but but no, you're you're right. Why? But I don't know. I don't know if if the 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 mad scientist uh, story is more inspirational. I I think it's just it's it's. Uh, but like it's you said, there's there, there's a fear element to to the zombie story, right? And I think that that might that might be the selling point. That might be what sells. I don't think it's necessarily the mad scientist story that's inspirational at all. You know. They should do a story about Gleevec. Make a Hollywood, put Brad Pitt as the, uh, <laughs> as the inventor of Gleevec, you know? Mm -hmm. That would give money to research, you know? Yeah. Uh, or Tom Hanks or, you know, one of those <laughs> giants. Make them, you know, put a, 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 a white coat on them and make them spend night and days writing grants mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> uh, sensitize the public that... Uh, uh, the people that are not talking much, uh, that you don't see, uh, mm -hmm. and um, that are unable to express themselves, they might have the solution. Right, right. They might, they right. might be the ones, they, or they are the ones kind of pushing humanity in the right direction. Right? Yes. The people that yeah. we don't hear about too often. Yeah. Right. I have yeah. nothing against Brad Pitt fighting against the zombies, <laughs> but I would prefer by far to see him writing a grant. Right. You know, and, and you know, putting your R one ten times and ten times having the reviewer saying it's a bad idea, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, and then here is the great idea that could have uh, uh, that could have um, uh, cured people ten years before was was never financed. Mm -hmm. I have in mind very uh, you know molecules that have not been financed. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the research were were, were abandoned because. Uh, uh, because of uh, side effects due to a side effects that were due to a mistake of preparation because uh, people that prepared the molecules were not uh, those who were properly trained for it because those who were trained for it were not were let go because some businessman took a wrong decision mm. and it's 10 years between uh, that ten years before somebody else take again this molecule, take up, take up this molecule again, and uh, demonstrate that this molecule is actually a cure, mm -hmm. right? And that is a disaster. That that right. is a catastrophe for. Uh, that is a real danger, uh, mm. much more than the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> but see, I think the the thing that we have to realize a little bit is that, fortunately, by and large. Hollywood or movie production, it, it's a profit-driven field, right? And I know you would watch that movie, and I would watch that movie, but would the public at large watch that movie, right? That's kind of the issue here. You know, at, at the beginning you were saying that you want to show that scientists are human too. Yes. Yeah. And um, I can confirm they are human too. <laughs> and, <laughs> Yes, and the success. The fact is that they also watch movies. Mm -hmm. And when you are a young scientist, you are 25, 30, and um, you have watched that movie, that zombie movie, and you don't know which career you want to take. You know you're good, you know you can do uh, molecular biology, but how do you take the decision to follow more... Uh, such a path, this path or that path. Mm -hmm. It is not a purely intellectual, a purely academic decision. It's also an emotional decision. Right. And there are plenty of um, factors that make you take a decision or another. And at the subconscious level, 
what Hollywood told you to do, you know, suggest, uh, uh, show who is the hero, is as a uh, plays a part, mm-hmm. right? So how do you choose to follow such or such molecule? It's very hard to say what is the decisional process. But what I'm sure is that everything counts. Right. And uh, why people who choose to work in academia versus in company versus um, on one field or another, it's, it, the, the, decisional, uh, the decisional process is, is, um, is something extremely delicate. And I, I think that uh, the media have a responsibility in that. Mm-hmm. And when they influence uh, entire generations by formatting heroes, they influence, indirectly, they influence also the decision of the scientists. Ah, I and I don't think yeah. it's a trivial problem. Mm-hmm. You know? And right. the, the bright young person who will choose to do finance uh, versus uh, science uh, versus biology, um, at what point does he take this uh, decision? He takes this decision because he will believe that for himself, he will find more reward making tons of money rather than saving humanity. Bite me. Why? Who told him or her that? Why is it better? Right. You make tons of money and you can you might die alone. Mm-hmm. And at 30, because you, you got brain cancer. Mm. Right. right? Why is yeah. it more rewarding to make tons of money than to find a cure? Mm-hmm. Who say that? I, and I, I, just to play devil's advocate, uh, somebody might say that it's it's uh, you can pursue science yourself and pursue the research yourself, or perhaps go into finance, make a ton of money, and then pump it into science research. Right? Would that that kind of be the other side of the coin there? Yes, yeah. that's that's good. That that would work. Yeah. Mm. But then I guess true. But, it's true that you find. And uh, that um, uh, academias at large can be very grateful to generous benefactors. There are people, indeed, as you say, they make tons of money and they give back. And this is remarkable when it happens. Mm. That is true. Right. But at the same time, I think you're right in that in that the media, Hollywood uh, in, in general, can, if not play, you know, the most important part, can play an additional role in kind of painting a more, uh, I guess, satisfying rather than dangerous picture yes. of, of this, you know, the scientific process yeah. of, of scientists in general. Right, yeah. You know, the, I mean, I, I, have, um, uh, I have experienced firsthand, uh, like all the scientists of my generation, the, the extraordinarily, extraordinarily tragic decay of uh, uh, federal grants. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, it's fair to say that 15 years ago, maybe 30 percent of the grants who were reviewed would be um, would be uh, uh, financed. Uh, now it's maybe less than 10 percent. Mm-hmm. It makes a huge difference. But is is that because there's less money available, or just more grants coming in? I mean, or more grant applications coming in? Well, there is more grant applications because there is less money, but there is much less money. Oh, but yeah. when you look, when you look at the at the money at large, at the stock of money in the world, you realize that there are, there is tons of money. Yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, if you say the right word on the internet, you can have hundred thousand dollars like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 a it's a matter of how you sell your story. But to get $100,000 for a grant, you know, uh, uh, to find the next key for cancer, at times it looks like it's a, it's a, it breaks, it, it completely ruins careers. Mm-hmm. It's a, a, the, 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 the exercise of grant writing, it's, it's absolutely uh, awful. Mm-hmm. Awful, and yeah. it's not necessarily the, the best ideas that get the grants. It's the people that are capable to uh, to communicate. And we are back to um, a, a major problem of the scientists is that very often uh, 
scientists communicate badly. Mm-hmm. They're aloof. Uh, they, they, they're not, I mean, they, again, they, it's, a, it's a very selected um, uh, population. It's a very particular profile of uh, 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 academically gifted and uh, emotionally uh, not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just not. Well, <laughs> yeah, and I it's mean, very yeah, I mean, you're doing a good job of communicating. <laughs> well, I spent uh, uh, an enormous amount of time working on that. Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean that is—it's just, but like you said, there, there, there is having, I guess, uh, knowledge or expertise, proficiency in 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 the science or the pursuit of the science, but also in in emotional intelligence. And uh, but at the same time, because it's a type of intelligence, like you said. It can be built over time. Yes, right? that's so, the difference between emotional intelligence and uh, an IQ. Is that mm-hmm. emotional intelligence can be built upon time, mm-hmm. can be educated, can be refined. IQ, no. Mm-hmm. Which means that uh, kids that are bright at twenty, um, if they have to wait uh, uh, being fifty to be able to express themselves. You you have lost thirty years of creativity there, right? Right, because yeah. they were just unable. They they knew what they wanted to know at twenty. They wanted to do at twenty. Mm-hmm. So if somebody, if they can find a mentor that put them in the right situation in the right life, give them the the money, then you have uh, you have magic happening. Mm-hmm. But somebody else has to translate what he's doing because he can't talk, right. or she can't talk, can't tell. Mm-hmm. And so that's an important thing in the field of science, or really any field. You know, if you want to talk about actors, or the art, any other field in the arts, in science, having the right mentor or mentors can be immensely important, right? And oh yeah. So, and you, you, you did you, you did most of your, if not all of your studies in France, correct? Yeah, I got yes. the MD and the PhD in France. In yeah. France. And so if you think back, like, could you point out any specific mentors, or any specific people that kind of helped you overcome any any difficult stepping stones, any challenges that you might have had in your education? Yeah. Uh, uh, I was, uh, so I, well, I did medical school in, in, uh, in Marseille. Uh, where I did not meet any mentor, <laughs> so I, I went through it, and it mm-hmm. was uh, uh, quite painful. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I got it. And after that, um, uh, at the end of medical school, I realized that I had not found what I wanted. I wanted to. Um, uh, uh, find effic- efficacious treatments for uh, chronic disease, and uh, it was not there. 30 years ago, it was not there. Mm-hmm. Um, 25 or well, a while ago, it was not there at all. Um, so I decided to uh, continue studying, and I I did not know which uh, uh, what to study and what to do. And but fortunately, I was I, I had a friend. Uh, who was uh, interning the same uh, department than me, and her husband was an immunologist. And she spent, um, uh, she was kind enough to listen to my rambling, and she said, well, you know, what you are saying sounds a lot like what my husband is uh, rambling about, so maybe you should try immunology. Mm-hmm. And I was in Marseille, uh, that has a great center of immunology there, so I went there. And uh, I asked uh, to the administration how I could study. What, to, what was the process to enter to, to, to study immunology? And I was given a long list of laboratories with uh, their projects, and I could not understand the vast majority of the titles because they were <laughs> you know, using words I did not know. Right. Uh, but I know I, I recognize a few words that were um, linked to parasitology because it had something to do with pathology. So I went to, um, I, I just called the, the, the laboratories and uh, 
one laboratory needed an MD to go to Brazil to study uh, schistosoma. Uh, so I thought it was great, and I went there for one year, which I had a great time, uh, but I still did not learn what I wanted. Um, uh, and as I was registered at the time, you know, I diploma, uh, well, it's like an equivalent of a master uh, in immunology, and one of the uh, one of the professor uh, absolutely fascinated me. It was the first time that I heard the hypothesis that uh, death was a specialization of life. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Which okay. Is the truth, which okay. Is, which is exactly what it is. Death is a specialization of life. The primitive form of life, such as bacteria, proliferate indefinitely, which means that they are immortal, mm -hmm. essentially. They are okay. all the same, and they double, right? right. You never have death. You have death by starvation, but you have not natural death, right? Right. Well, uh, organism, when they become, when you, when you have a multicellular organism, you have to have some death, some cells that die, in order to permit other cells to, um, uh, to specialize. Mm -hmm. Right? So an example is uh, the hand, the, the formation of the hand. You have, uh, uh, when you see the hand of a fetus, the, they, are, they are membranes between the fingers. Ah, really, like webbed fingers, yeah. Webbed fingers. Yeah. And eventually that membrane disappears. It's necessary that uh, at the, during, the, during the growth of the fetus, this membrane is necessary to maintain all the structure in place. Mm -hmm. But at the end, it has to go. So this, it's a death that is programmed. So programmed death is a specialization of life and is critical to uh, make complex life happen. And so, and it's called apoptosis. Apoptosis, and, yeah. And it's, it's absolutely, uh, and so there is two types of their cell deaths, the necrosis and the apoptosis. And, well, so I was completely in awe in front of this scientist, and his name is Pierre Gottstein, and um, I, uh, I went to see him and I begged to, for him to take me to his lab. <laughs> and he was a, a fantastic mentor. And actually this man, uh, his laboratory identified CTLA-4, that he is the first uh, antibodies that was uh, approved by the FDA for treatment of cancer. And mm -hmm. the revolution that we are seeing right now for cancer um, with those antibody treatments is actually curing some patients. It's, he, he began that because it's coming from his lab. Wow. He's at the origin of that. So that was an extraordinary luck, you know, to, to have him uh, teaching us and having him accepting me in his lab. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he, he's retired now, but still very active. Uh, he is uh, an emeritus professor at, uh, at the for the for the INSERM and CNRS is one of those you know I mean, highly honored, and um, and he he determined the rest of my career because he, he pointed to me the, the, the uh, labs in the world that could uh, uh, support my interests and um, uh, when people ask me why did I go to America I say well I follow CTLA four I followed my molecule mm -hmm. you know, it's exactly mm -hmm. that. And um, so, yeah, he was uh, an incredible mentor. So, mm -hmm. I won't take that phone call. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's how I find myself um, uh, in postdoc at Bristol Myers Creek uh, in the laboratory of uh, Peter Lindsley, who uh, identified the receptor of CTLA4. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it's Bristol Myerscript that uh, is now uh, commercializing um, anti-CTLA4 and uh, now anti-PD1. 
<laughs> yeah. Just have dirty drink because you obviously it won't give up. <laughs> so yeah, that's, so that's how, that's how it happened. Uh, then when I so I did my postdoc at BMS in Seattle, uh, it was working great. It was a, a great place. But a businessman uh, decided that this uh, the Seattle branch of BMS had to close. Mm. And that was brutal, you know? So mm. it was two years in my postdoc and they, they just closed the branch. Uh, but well, that's, that's things that happen. Yeah. For, it, it still does not make much sense for me at the scientific level. Maybe at the business level they thought it was making some sense at some point. But mm. So yeah, Pierre Goldstein was uh, extraordinarily uh, important. Mm. And then it was Nicole Urbain, as I was saying, you know. Uh, Yeah, I think they were the two most important people, um, mm. mentor, two mentors. Then I, I, I worked with people that um, that had uh, great careers, great reputation, and uh, but I cannot say that uh, it was really mentorship they were doing, rather uh, use of, you know, wise use of uh, young brain, but not mentorship. It's mm. very okay. But but at the same time, I mean, like you said, that the the professor that you came into contact with uh, in during your PhD program, and he kind of set up the trajectory. Oh yeah, for the for the rest of your career. Yeah, yeah. right. And like, like you said, he started a revolution in cancer treatment using yes. antibodies. So there should be a movie made about it. Absolutely. <laughs> right. right. He, he's, he, yeah. But he, he should be. He should be those hero, mm-hmm. you know. He, he is a hero. I, for me, he is my hero, mm-hmm. and he should be a hero of a movie. Mm-hmm. But his personality uh, uh, is the opposite of a diva, you know. He he would not take an interview. He would not like to go to meetings. He would not. He would not show off whatsoever. Mm. Uh, a yeah. very fine person, but very private. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you have some scientists, those that are seen in the media, they have completely different personalities. Mm-hmm. Right. But it, I guess it's, it's important to have some of those people in every field, right? To, to, yeah. 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 But, you know, the, our, our um, I would say that, the, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, the Western society favor extroverts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, favor extroversion. Yeah. You have a better chance to be seen if you're extrovert. Um, uh, the introvert have a, a harder time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's in a way it is in a way in, uh, in, uh, in understanding what the science world is about. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk a little bit about um advice that might be uh, worth dishing out for somebody interested in, in the scientific world. So apart from telling young scientists or budding scientists not to be too swayed by Hollywood portrays, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, the way Hollywood portrays scientists, like what, what other piece of advice might you give to, to a young person who's either considering a career in science or uh, can't really decide in which direction to go within science? Well, to go talk... Uh, uh, to professors, to to scientists. Uh, so, if you have an interest in science, uh, I will talk about what I know that is biologic science. Go to PubMed and mm-hmm. enter the keywords mm-hmm. and look who is publishing, who publishes on what, and if there is um, a paper that you like or you have questions about. Look up the last author or the first author, the corresponding author, and send an email. You might send, uh, and sending an email to an author and saying, I really love your paper, and uh, I'd like to understand more, and I'd like to talk to you. Uh, it, it's, not, it's, it's, it's something that 
will warm up the heart of a scientist, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I see. I see it as the equivalent of if there's a recording artist out there who releases a fantastic song, and yeah. then you email them saying, "Hey, I really love this song." It's kind of like that, right? It's it's exactly yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, a paper is uh, very often years of work um, in the bench at the bench, and then uh, uh, hundreds of of uh, hours of writing, uh, a lot of frustration, and at the end. Uh, if you receive if you receive email saying you have you have written a fantastic paper it's uh, it inspires me um, you will have an effect mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and try to get in contact with those people because those the, the person who has written this paper may not be the person with the money and therefore capable to offer you a, a place uh, you know a place to do your research but uh, may know somebody who has. Uh, the resources uh, to support your research. Mm-hmm. And uh, don't be taken aback by uh, the lack of answers or awkward answers or awkward <laughs> accents mm-hmm. or uh, aloofness uh, because you're not dealing with um, people that most of the time have uh, a very high emotional intelligence so they don't communicate well. Mm-hmm. And you might be dealing with people that are vastly overworked and largely underpaid or are extraordinarily worried to not have enough resources. Right. So that is in the way of communication. Mm-hmm. And um, you also, you know, you, um, the, the, the system of reward, you know, is, is, is different. Um, that is what you learn at school where everybody tells you, great job, you know, especially in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, this does not happen very often in, in, uh, in uh, the world of the, of the laboratories. So people who have a passion for, uh, for science should follow it and uh, understand that uh, the people that can help them the best might uh, not be the most demonstrative, the most extrovert out mm-hmm. there. So right. to get over that and to rather uh, focus on the on the message rather than the, the way it's delivered. Got it. Well, that is a great piece of advice. And I want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fantastic. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for taking time. All right. Thank you very much once again. Bye-bye. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.